The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime! Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome one and all to Night Fright. Two words tonight, Peter Lavenda's back. Yeah, I'm excited too, folks. Peter Lavenda is one of the world's leading authorities on the occult, the Nazis, and modern-day warfare. His non-fiction books, titles like Unholy Alliance, a history of Nazi involvement with the occult, rat lines, Soviet spies, Nazi priests, and the disappearance of Adolf Hitler, and his trilogy, Sinister Forces. Wait, I have all three books right here, and I'm going to run out of hands, but I'll just keep them going this way. How's that, folks? You can get all this stuff, by the way, at the Show website, and uh, just click on tonight's guest book covers and take it right to a spot where you can order all these books we're about to talk about tonight, including his new book, which is called The Lovecraft Code. (laughs) I feel like I should be working for Cirque du Soleil. Okay, Peter Lavenda has an Emmy in Religious Studies and Asian Studies and is a member of, are you ready for this? The AFIO. You know what that stands for? The Association of Former Intelligence Officers. Uh-huh. Peter Lavenda is a regular on Night Fright, and it's good to welcome him back once again. And when Peter comes on this show, you can guarantee he will bring it, and you'll leave wiser and with more insight on the machinations of the world and how everything ties together. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be here. It's great. Great new book, by the way. Now, I keep going to do this every time you've been on the show. I think you've been on six, seven, eight times now. The Association of Former Intelligence Officers. We've never touched on that. What is that about? Are you allowed to speak, or is there something? It's a long story, but I don't want people to go away with the misconception that that means I am a former intelligence officer. People can join AFIO who are not intelligence officers. Uh, It's a fraternal organization. It's been around for quite some time. I first became aware of it when uh, a former intelligence officer and I shared office space in Queens, New York. Uh, The gentleman used to work with uh, E. Howard Hunt at the Robert Mullen in Washington, D.C. He was a colleague operating out of the same front organization in D.C. that Howard uh, had operated out of. Except this, the, the man that I worked with uh, 
used to be posted in Singapore uh, was fluent in Mandarin. And that's we sort of bonded over that because I had studied Mandarin as well. So we kind of bonded over that. And then eventually he started telling me about his background and the fact that some of the Watergate prosecutors were still looking for this guy. Um, but uh, he's sort of dropped out of sight since then. Arthur Hochberg, uh, he's a kind of a footnote in Watergate, but people who've been studying that subject know the name and they dearly love to talk to him because he did work with uh, E. Howard Hunt uh, out of that same office in D.C. So he belonged to AFIO, to AFIO, and that's the first time I became aware of it. And then uh, about 10 years ago or so, I was invited, was it 10 years? It's, no, it's 2009. I have the mouse pad to prove it. Uh, in 2009, I was invited uh, to go to one of their meetings in Las Vegas by a current member, and I became very much uh, enthusiastic about the group. I mean, you're hanging out with people yeah. who uh, dated all the way back to OSS days, World War II, some of them. And you're talking about living history and talking to people who had been in um, in harm's way uh, in the covert and self-services for our country for a long time was fascinating. And talk to these people to, to, to listen to their stories, what they could tell me of their stories and some of the the crazy stuff that we did during that particular uh, meeting out in Las Vegas back in 2009, it sort of inspired me to uh, do what I had to do to, to join AFIO, which is, you know, restricted to U.S. citizens. And I guess there's some sort of a kind of a desultory background check or something uh, to join. But it's something that uh, people can do. And uh, I've been a member of it now for, well, not quite 10 years. Anything you can share with us? Oh, it's uh, like I say, it's a, it's an organization that um, you don't need a security clearance really to belong to. Uh, it's probably useful, but uh, they have their own publications and they have meetings, and the meetings are very um, uh, eye-opening. In some cases, nothing that you wouldn't find in open source material, you know, on the internet. But what's valuable is actually rubbing shoulders with people who had actually been there and done that. And that's really what the, what it's all about. I had a similar situation here in Canada where uh, I gave a lecture on the Kennedy assassination to a place called RMC, which is the Royal Military College here in Canada, in Kingston, folks. That's where we broadcast from. And this is where they train all. It's like Annapolis. It's like... Um, uh, what's the other one? West Point. And uh, it's also the head of our communications and our intel is here as well. So I had all these, these old RCMP guys, which would be, I guess, our CIA guys, CSIS guys. And um, they were gathered around telling old war stories. You're absolutely right. All these old Cold War stories that we read about in books, these were the guys that were right there in the trenches. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. I agree with you. It's just touching, rubbing shoulders with real life history. Let's talk about your book. It's a fabulous book. The Lovecraft Code, folks. I'm just going to read a quote here to start us off. It goes like this. It was known as Al-Kitab al-Asif, an Arabic expression meaning the buzzing of insects. This means the circadas that eat our grapevines. Their sound is unusual. And to someone of Abdul Hassad's, Hasrad's sensitivity, extremely suggestive. He believed 
the sound was made by the cicadas reacting to the presence of the old ones. And we're going to find out what those old ones are tonight as well. Of course, by that time, he was completely mad. The book was written in Abdul Hazrad's own hand in Arabic, but was translated into Greek shortly after the Arab's death by an Assyrian priest. The priest felt that the buzzing of the insects was a reference to the strange words that are found in the book, words that are not Arabic or Farsi or even Kurdish, but which come from the ancient tongue of the Yazidi, Sumerian. In Europe, they would have called it the language of the birds instead of insects, a coded language understood only by the initiated, As the book is concerned with the dead gods of the old times and the means to ensure they remain dead, the priests gave the book the title in Greek by which it is best known, the Necromoticon. Wow, that's explosive. Let's dive into this book right away, Peter, shall we? Okay. Okay, let's talk about some of the characters. But first, let's start off, I guess, the best place is with Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Can you give a little bit of background about Howard Phillips Lovecraft that people don't already know? Well, he's one of the most um, talked about authors these days. I think he's he's undergoing a kind of a renaissance of interest in, uh, from people all over the place, from academia as well as just in general. Uh, Lovecraft was born in Providence, Rhode Island, Uh, He spent all of his life, except for two years, in Rhode Island. Those two years that he spent outside, he spent in Brooklyn. Actually, he spent it in what is now known as Brooklyn Heights. In those days, it was called Red Hook. Um, There's still a Red Hook in Brooklyn, but it's a lot smaller than it it used to be. In those days, I actually, um, for a while, I lived in Brooklyn Heights. I lived only a couple of blocks from where Howard lived in his, uh, his brownstone back in the 1970s. But he died uh, in 1937. He was 47 years old when he died. He died quite young. He was uh, a recluse for the most part. Um, He grew up under very strange circumstances. His father was a traveling salesman who died probably from syphilis. He went insane. His mother also went insane. She used to walk around the, uh, the halls of their home on Angel Street talking about mysterious beings that she couldn't see, and she was ranting and raving and that sort of thing. So Howard grew up with, um, with a family that was a little bizarre. He loved his grandfather. His grandfather had a great library, including some Masonic texts, as well as um, old histories and geographies and stories about the Arabian Nights and that sort of thing. Howard kind of grew up on that. He loved his grandfather. His grandfather died when Howard was young. So Howard kept, his world kept getting smaller and smaller, basically. And he was rather sickly. Uh, He never graduated high school. But he wanted to be a scientist. He wanted to be an astronomer. He was self-proclaimed as an atheist. And yet in the midst of all of this, he started writing the stories for which he's really well known, the gothic horror type of stories, as they're called in some cases, perhaps erroneously. But at any rate, Lovecraft had his own style. Uh, a lot of very purple prose and a lot of uh, hyperbolic statements. But basically his stories involved beings from other parts of the galaxy or other parts of the universe who possibly had populated this planet 
uh, immeasurable aeons ago, millions and millions of years ago, as Carl Sagan would say, millions and millions of years ago. And so all of these um, creatures were at one point on our planet, and according to Lovecraft's stories, now they were trying to come back. Maybe they were on their way back, and there was some kind of contact being made by certain human beings uh, who had special capabilities or using special rituals or special types of techniques to contact these ancient gods and to call them back to our planet, which would have meant destruction of the human race eventually. So Lovecraft had developed these stories, uh, this kind of horror, this almost existential horror. And he was one of the first people to really talk about uh, ancient aliens, you know, the, the sort of ancient alien phenomenon. We have all the shows on the History Channel and places like that. This was all prefigured, prefigured long before Eric von Daniken, long before Zechariah Sitchin, uh, long before Powell's and Bergier, Morning of the Magicians in 1960. Uh, Lovecraft was writing this stuff in the 1920s. And he kind of understood or felt that there was this continuum of existence between human beings on this planet today and some ancient, ancient life forms uh, that go back way, way beyond any kind of recorded history. And his stories are full of this, the unseen horror. Lovecraft was very fond of not actually describing what was horrible, just hinting at it enough. Uh, and that's where the fear came in, uh, not being able to see what was actually the threat, but writing around it, which is what Lovecraft did. And central to his, um, his stories are the idea that there's a cult out there that is operating in the world that's trying to open a gate between this world and the next and to bring these evil forces into our planet using ritual magic quite often and perhaps the most famous um, uh, trope of all of this is the book that you talked about at the very beginning Al-Kitab al-Azif the book of the humming or the the noise the buzzing of the insects Kitab is the Al-Kitab is the Arabic for book and azif is an Arabic term that means this kind of buzzing uh, of insects. So that text is something that Lovecraft kind of developed and eventually became into the, the title in, that it's known in Greek as Necronomicon, or the Book of the Dead, or the Book of the Dead Names, or the, the Laws of the Dead. It's interpreted many different ways. And it's the idea that this book never really existed. It's part of the Lovecraft mystique. And that the Yazidi, whom you mentioned in that opening, is an actual group of people who claim they have something called the Black Book. Um, so all of these things taken together is what sort of ignited the idea for this novel. Now, it's said that Necromonicon came to him in a dream or a bunch of images that just flashed into his head somehow. Is, is this just mythology or do you think there's some credence to it? Any idea in your research? This is the thing. Um, what I find interesting about Lovecraft, he is aggressively atheistic. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he's a complete scientist as far as his point of view about life is concerned. So he, he talks down about religion and about occultism and all of this very much. But at the same time, in The Call of Cthulhu, which is probably his most famous short story, which introduces a lot of these elements, these plot elements, he talks about the, the point that this Cthulhu, this dead priest of the ancient ones or the old ones, 
um, is in telepathic communication with other human beings, mostly with artists and writers and musicians, sensitive people on the planet are the mm -hmm. first ones to hear the call of Cthulhu. Yeah. And Lovecraft is himself an artist and a writer. And it's perhaps what he's trying to tell us is that he's unconsciously um, in, in a kind of telepathic communication with something. He's reporting something which is very real to him, perhaps because he grew up as a child in a household that was very strange, um, filled with adults. You don't really have the sense that Lovecraft grew up with other children. There were no other children around him, it seemed. His, um, his community was all adults. I mean, adults of considerable age as well in some cases. So a very serious type of upbringing that he had. So his childhood was restricted mostly to his dreams. And so he would dream things like Abdul Hazrat, you know, this famous mad Arab of his stories. He would dream words like Necronomicon or Al-Azif or, or things of that nature and would build, start to build a mythology around them. I think that there's a possibility that there was something else going on with Lovecraft. And one of the reasons I think that is because of another book that I had published a couple of years ago called The Dark Lord. And in that book, I compared The Dark Lord with, uh, I compared Lovecraft's stories with some of the occult writings of Aleister Crowley. Now, Aleister Crowley was an actual magician and an actual yeah. ritual occultist. And around 1907, Crowley began writing a series of books, short, very short texts, that he called the Holy Books. And these books are written in the same kind of language that Lovecraft wrote his stories. They're very unusual for Crowley because Crowley didn't write that way. And Crowley's writing this very, again, purple prose, and we're talking about obelisks and cyclopean architecture and all this weird stuff that Lovecraft normally writes about. But the date that he's writing these things, he's very specific, Crowley, that it's October 30, 31st, and November 1st of 1907. Oddly, in the Call of Cthulhu, that's precisely the date where there's a ritual taking place in, in the, the bayous outside of New Orleans, where the, love, the, the, the Cthulhu cult is, is massing, and they're having this orgiastic ritual in, in, the, in the bayous which is then berated by the police and broken up, and they find statues, and they find all sorts of stuff going on, all kinds of ritual magic going on on precisely the same day that, Love, that, excuse me, that Crowley is actually writing his holy books. Lovecraft is writing about a ritual taking place on that very same day and using the same language. If you compare the language of the Call of Cthulhu with the language of the holy books, it looks like it was written by the same person. So I'm not saying there was a telepathic communication taking place between Crowley and Lovecraft. Who knows? What I am saying, though, is that there is something more happening there. That these two people who didn't know each other at that time are writing almost the same type of prose. And in fact, Crowley mentions a word in his holy books that has no known antecedent in Crowley's own rituals. And this is the word Tutulu, which is so close to Cthulhu of Lovecraft that it's uncanny also. So now you have Tutulu in this book, this strange god, even Crowley himself doesn't know who that is. And he's writing about that in 1907 on October 31st on Halloween, 
just when this ritual is supposedly, this fictional ritual, is taking place in Lovecraft's world. So for me, there was a connection, there is a connection between the two. We're not quite sure what all of that means, but we can't ignore it and say, well, it's just a coincidence. The coincidence is too dense. It involves prose poetry, it involves rituals, it involves the same name uh, coming up, and specifically the same date. Um, Lovecraft is very specific about dates. He's always very specific in his stories. A certain month, day, and year is when something happened. And I always felt that Lovecraft was trying to tell us something there. And that's what gave rise to this idea that maybe there's a Lovecraft code. It's fabulous stuff. Peter is always absolutely fabulous. Now, do you think he was a numerologist? Is this why the dates were so important? It's based on the Christian. I should I should emphasize though that the the dates we're talking about are based on the Christian Bible, if you will, or the English Bible. Do you think he was a numerologist? Um, Lovecraft? No. Yes. I don't, no, I don't not think at so. all. Okay. I think not at all. No, he would not have been, unless he was playing games with numbers. But I don't believe so. There's no evidence that he was in his writings, in his correspondence, and that sort of thing. You don't find any evidence of that. In fact, he poo-poo's okay. all of that stuff. Okay, let's talk about some of the characters you've got in the book. Gregory Angel, he's a disillusioned professor of religion and languages. There are a couple of quotes I'd like to read. There are sacraments of good as well as evil. This is the worship of the death and worse. There is no God. There is no devil. There is only us and them. And another quote, the Necromonicon was a joke, a running literary gag, an invention. This is what people still believe today, folks. He knew these people weren't lying, but they couldn't be telling the truth. Lovecraft saw it coming. His stories weren't fantasies. They were predictions. Wow. This is great stuff. I mean, it's all based on your research from day one, and it brings all this reality together, all these um, synchronicities together in one incredible adventure. Has anybody uh, optioned the book yet, by the way? Uh, no, not yet. Not yet. Uh, and I think the key word there is yet. I think we're in for a treat, and I get to do the music right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Gregory Angel and mm -hmm. how much of him is you and uh, how much of him is not you and where that composite character comes from. Well, Gregory Angel is based on um, the character in The Call of Cthulhu. Uh, the very first uh, character we come across is a Professor George Angel of Brown University. He's Professor Emeritus of Oriental Languages. Uh, that was the creation of, of Lovecraft. However, the Angel family is a very real family in Providence, Rhode Island. They were one of the first people to colonize uh, Rhode Island with Roger Williams back in the 1600s. So the Angel family goes back at least that far. Mm. And there was an Angel uh, member of that family who was president of Brown University. Another one was president of Yale University. The Angel family was very august uh, family there. Their Lovecraft lived on Angel Street uh, in Providence. So there was no escaping the Angel family. What, um, what tied it all together for me was the fact that that Angel family still exists. And they're still very important in that part of the world, in New England, in Rhode Island, in Boston. And uh, there's a very famous, or was a very famous, television producer, a man called David Angel, uh, who was responsible for things like Frasier, Cheers, Wings. Um, he was very involved in, in all of those comedies, hit comedies of, of their time, of course. 
massive, you know, monster hit comedies, uh, sitcoms. And yet he was in the plane that slammed into the North Tower on September 11, 2001. So my character, Gregory Angel, is a, is a member of that family, kind of a black sheep of the Angel family. Uh, and he ties together Lovecraft's idea of the Angel family being involved in the call of Cthulhu and researching the Cthulhu cult and bringing it all the way up to modern day. There's a Cthulhu cult, there's the Mad Arabs of, you know, Lovecraft's period of the 1920s, and now here's the very real Mad Arabs, you know, of September 11th. Yeah. So what, what is the connective tissue there? So my Gregory Angel is a descendant of that original professor that Lovecraft invented, but he's also a member of this sort of real family, of the Angel family. So he's motivated because of September 11th, uh, to go and to do what he can for the war effort. He's a professor of religious studies. He speaks a lot of dead languages. He has a degree in archaeology. He's the perfect person to embed with uh, some uh, military units going into Afghanistan and Iraq. And he does this. He's involved with that. And yet, as something happens to him, he witnesses something terrible during one of these missions. And what he, what he witnesses makes him basically give up on God, become an atheist. He loses his faith completely. And he kind of retreats into himself, goes to bed at night with a gun under his pillow. Uh, he's given up on religion, but he's still, ironically, a religious studies professor. Um, so he's trying to teach and at the same time stay away. He has this love-hate relationship with his field. And at that point, that's when a mysterious intelligence agency discovers him and hires him to recruits him to find something extremely important, because now there's all sorts of chatter on the uh, on on electronic media by a lot of different groups all throughout the Middle East and Central Asia, and around the world, talking about something that's about to happen, and it has to do with religion, it has to do with the book, it has to do with the cult, and the only person who's really best suited to find out what all of this is and to hunt down this mysterious book is our friend Gregory Angel. So he's recruited much against his will and thrown into this mess. He's a person who's given up on God, no longer believes in religion, and yet his mission is a religious one, basically, is to find out what's going on with these cults and, you know, what is this book and, you know, try to avert a catastrophe. How much of Peter Lavenda is part of Angel? Well, he's better looking than I am. Um, <laughs> Come sure. on. The co-eds are, are you, they're going crazy right now. I told you that in the email before. Sure. Um, I mean, I have, of course, I study religious studies. I have, you know, a degree in that. Uh, I love that field. I've been studying it for most of my life, one way or the other. Um, so I, I understand. I can, I can relate to Gregory's um, problems, his existential problem. I can relate to his interest and fascination with that part of the world and with religion. At the same time, I can relate to his, his lack of faith, the, the things that happen to him that make him question the very reality of uh, question God, to question the existence of God. And I think that's really important because there's, um, we're, we're at a point where we're about ready, I think, to go into a different realm, reach a different level of understanding what religion is and maybe what God is. I think we're on the verge of new interpretations and new discoveries where this is concerned. 
Um, it's just something that I think has been boiling for a long time. And I can understand the points of view of atheists who uh, blame religion for religious wars and the fact that religious people don't seem to be very religious or very spiritual at all, and uh, religion as, you know, an excuse for violence and all. I can understand all of that. I've read all the atheists. I've read Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and everyone else, and I understand their point of view. Um, but I also feel that their reaction against religion and against God is like that of a jilted lover. I mean, there's a lot of emotion in there. Uh, and there's a lot, it's not a purely rational approach, it seems to me, when I read their writings anyway. It seems more like I'm mad at God rather than I don't believe in God. So it's, um, it's something that I wanted to explore in these books. I wanted to take that as far as I could, to take a rational 21st century American uh, citizen who's a specialist in religion and have him question God and then run across people who kind of agree with him. And as you pointed out in the quote, there is no God, there's no devil, there's just us and them. And the idea that there might be another force in the universe, even another force on our planet, that we identify as God or devil to our detriment, to our disadvantage. I agree. We have to get past those binary ideas and look at something that's even deeper, perhaps more more threatening even. No, so I agree. A little bit. There's a little bit. I have a little bit there with Gregory for sure. Peter Lavenda, folks, the book is called The Lovecraft Code, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover, and uh, you'll be able to get this book, and there will be a bunch of other book covers there from all of Peter's uh, works, and you'll be able to order them from the comfort of your own home. The other thing I forgot to mention at the outset of the show, get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going, settle back, because, man, this is one great ride, and I'm so excited to have Peter back on with his brand-new book, it's amazing. You are not going to want to put this down now. One of the quotes on the back of the book, and I have to agree, and it's praise for the Lovecraft, a more intelligent Da Vinci Code, Christopher Farnsworth, author of Red, White, and Blood and the President's Vampire. Absolutely correct. How, do you, how do you feel about that statement? Well, I'm not a Dan Brown fan, so for me that's fine, you know. <laughs> I am really am not. I know that's going to irritate a lot of people, but I thought I thought that uh, the Da Vinci Code itself, uh, from my point of view, was very poorly written, and um, it's like he phoned it in. I liked Angels and Demons, uh, the first novel that he wrote in that series, uh, well enough, but the Da Vinci Code left me kind of flat. And I think probably the reason is I had done all kinds of work on Holy Blood, Holy Grail, the nonfiction basis for the Da Vinci Code. And I read a lot of that material and knew where all of that was coming from. So reading Da Vinci Code was kind of uh, denouement. I mean, it was, was not, it, it just didn't grip me the way it maybe it gripped other people. So I had a problem with Dan Brown. So when Farnsworth went and said it was more intelligent, I went with it. Yeah, okay, I'll go with that. Um, <laughs> it's very true, folks. It's very true. Now, listen, I have to tell you, I just had Donnie Most on the show. Remember Ralph Melf? And he oh. works a lot with Ronnie Howard. Uh -huh. Just saying. So, you know, I'll put a good word in for you, buddy, because you. Okay. You, you just never know, right, what's going to take place. Okay, let's continue. What I really like about this work, it is a work of fiction, folks, but as Peter said at the outset, he melds all these real-life characters into the book. And there's 
none creepier, I don't think. Well, we're going to get to Himmler in a second, but Carl Tanzler. Oh, my God. I couldn't believe when I read his name in your book. Can you tell a little bit about the story of Carl Tanzler? Sure. And I think you brought up an interesting point about, I don't know, 75, 80% of the Lovecraft Code is based on fact. Um, I didn't make that much up. Uh, the narrative is, of course, made yeah. up, but a lot of the other stuff in there is based on on truth, on, on facts as we know them. And Carl Tanzler is one of those one of those facts, man. Uh, he really existed as a real person, uh, a German. Uh, come from he came from the area I think right near Dresden. He um, was captured as a prisoner of war during World War One somewhere out in Australia. He was put into a, a British. Uh, prison camp during World War One. He was traveling throughout Asia, Europe and Asia. He believed that he could see ghosts and see spirits. He claimed that once in India he was mistaken for dead and woke up in a morgue somewhere. Uh, he had a lot of very strange stories. But eventually he made his way back to Germany after the end of World War One. So in the early 1920s we find him back in Germany just as the Nazi party is starting. All of this we know to be a fact. And then eventually he leaves Germany and heads for the United States by way of Cuba. He winds up in Key West and becomes a, a x-ray operator in a hospital, at the Marine Hospital in Key West, where he falls in love with a young Cuban woman who's dying of tuberculosis. Um, she's in her 20s at this point. Uh, Tonsler is at least 20 years older than she is. But he falls in love with her, and he's trying to, to rescue her, basically, from the clutches of modern Western medicine, because he knows that they'll kill her eventually. They don't have a cure for tuberculosis. Well, he doesn't manage to cure her. She does die. And this is where the story gets very strange, because he builds a mausoleum for her in Key West. He moves her body into this beautifully built mausoleum. But what people don't know is that he has the place wired. He's got tubes coming in and out. He's got a telephone uh, set up inside the mausoleum in case she wants to make a call. Uh, so she ha he has the corpse of, of Marina Elena de Hoyos in this mausoleum, and he's trying to keep the body viable because he intends to resurrect her body. He believes he can raise her from the dead. And for years, years, he's going into that mausoleum every single night, He's replacing fluids. He's replacing bandages. He claims that she's moving occasionally. He claims that he can hear her talk. And all of this is going on until eventually her family gets wind of this. And they go and they want to, to have him arrested for molesting the body. At one point, he moves the body from the mausoleum to his house because there's a hurricane. There's all kinds of other stuff going on. So he puts the body in a little red wagon and, you know, carts her off to his house. Eventually, they do find the body. They find him. Uh, it becomes a cause celebre in, uh, in Key West. He's arrested. But the statute of limitations has expired. And all he's actually done is molest a dead body. Uh, there isn't much they can hold him on. And they let him go. But then they bury Elena in a mysterious, in an unmarked grave somewhere. The family doesn't want him to find her. And that's more or less the end of the story. However, part of the story also involves the fact that Carl Tanzler is building an airplane in the parking lot of the hospital where he works because he's going to fly himself and Marina Elena, the corpse, 
to the South Pacific. This is part of his idea as well. The plane has no wings at this point, but anyway, he's involved in doing that. Plus, he's also built his own organ. So he's playing organ music. It's sort of like this weird Vincent Price thing that's happening in Key West. So you have this strange guy with a corpse he's trying to revive, and all of this is going on. The interesting thing is, is that Lovecraft actually visited Key West twice during the time that Tonsler was down there. And, of course, Lovecraft had written a series of stories called Herbert West Reanimator, which was about trying to reanimate a corpse. And this was long before Tonsler began reanimating a corpse. So I put two and two together and said, well, what if Lovecraft and Tonsler met? Well, there's the connection also between Tonsler and the Nazi party. We don't know what that connection was, if anything. However, what we do know is that for most of his life, Karl Tanzler was getting a check every month from the German government. We don't know what that was for. And my speculation is that he was working as a kind of agent for the SS or for the, the, the German secret police in some capacity or another. Um, he was a very strange guy. After his arrest, when the whole thing came out, he wrote a series of articles uh, that were published in Ray Palmer's magazine, you know, the same magazine that published the stories about the first UFOs. Uh, so he wrote articles in there about how he reanimated the corpse, and he goes into great detail, and he talks about his uh, friendship with, um, with famous psychics back in Germany back in the day, uh, most of which I've proven has not, was not true. They were all dead before Tonsler was born. But at any rate, all of this stuff was going on. Tonsler was this really, really strange character, and he looks strange. It's a really bizarre story, folks, and it's very true. It's kind of a Frankenstein slash Phantom of the Opera story. Yeah. It is so bizarre. Uh, every time I read about it, I, I find out more, as I've just found out more tonight. And, you know, he was doing things to keep her bones together after she passed away, using wires, coat hangers. He would take plaster of Paris, um, sure. dipping cloth, folks, into wax and wrapping her body up with this stuff and... He had her her face all plastered and Paris and and took glass eyes when her when her eyes fell apart, took um, a wig of her real hair that he had taken and, and stuck it on her head when her hair fell out. I mean, this was absolutely absolutely bizarre. And then you bring the Nazi aspect into it. Let's talk about Heinrich Himmler, another hmm. guy that's for real and just as creepy. Yeah, well, Heinrich Himmler appears in the story for a number of reasons. Um, I've written about the Nazis, of yeah. course, in three books already, and a lot of people ask me, you write about Nazis, you write about Tantra, you write about this, you write about that. How do they all hang together? I mean, how do all these things, are they part of one you know, point of view? And I always say yes, and these things are connected. They, they do speak to each other. Heinrich Himmler, of course, became the head of the SS under Hitler, or the head of the, uh, the stormtroopers, he, um, and, and the Hitler's special personal guard. Uh, which is what the SS was really to be. It was an elite group, a kind of a knighthood, the way Himmler had uh, envisioned it. They wore black uniforms. They had the silver death set insignia. They were as creepy as creepy could possibly be. And within this creepy organization was an even creepier organization called the Ananerba, which was the Ancestral Heritage Research Bureau of the SS, which was their pagan occult research bureau. Now, this sounds completely made up, but I assure you it's not. Uh, anyone who's read my Unholy Alliance yeah. will be able to find all the microfilm records that are cited in there. You can look all this stuff up yeah. yourself. And there's been more research done, you know, of course, recently. 
this was a, an occult operation. Uh, all the Indiana Jones stuff came out of there. You had a guy called Otto Rahn. He was part of Himmler's personal staff. He was an SS officer. Uh, you had a guy called Karl Weistor, or Villegut. This was a man who had designed the death's head ring for Himmler, the one that all the SS officers wore. He was an absolutely insane. I mean, he believed he had total recall of all of his past lives going back to 10,000 years, and therefore was a source of information for Himmler as to how the original Aryan people lived and their religion and everything else. Mm -hmm. The guy had spent time in an insane asylum prior to all of this, and yet he was part of Himmler's personal staff. So Himmler had this fascination with occultism. He had a fascination with um, anything to do with paganism, esotericism, rituals, even Asian religions, yoga. He had financed an expedition to Tibet in 1938. Uh, the records of that expedition still exist. You can see photographs, mm -hmm. film footage. All of that is still available on the Internet. You'll find it easily. Uh, so he was really, Himmler was the guy who was financing all of this outrageous stuff and created film documentaries uh, based on ideas like the swastika and how you could find it all over the world, interpreting the pyramids and Stonehenge in terms of the Aryan peoples and all of this stuff. So Himmler was, was that kind of guy. Um, he was fascinated with it. He had his personal astrologer who advised him constantly when the next air raid was taking place, a man called Wilhelm Wolf. Um, so you had a man who was deeply embedded in occultism. And there was a lot of connection between what Himmler was doing and some of the people around uh, the occult communities of Europe and North America. So some of the more famous occultists, people like Julius Evola and René Guénon, some of the people who were very uh, prominent philosophical leaders of the traditionalist movement back in those days, which takes us far afield. But at any rate, these are writers you can look up today. Their books are still in print. Um, and Evola in particular was seconded by the SS uh, to look at a bunch of documents that they had seized, occult books that they had seized from various libraries and personal collections around Europe. Evola's task was to go through all this and identify what they were. Some of them were in foreign languages, some of them were manuscripts, they were not printed or published books. So Evola's job was to go looking at all of this and try to understand what it was. So he had that job for a brief time during World War II working for the SS and working for Heinrich Himmler. And that was another connection in my mind. Yeah, folks, once again, you know, there's all these great little nuances and arcs everywhere in it. Things uh, relate to each other. It's just a mystery that unravels right in your hands, and you're going to enjoy this book without question. The book is called The Lovecraft Code by Peter Lavenda. And uh, as Peter was saying, about 75% of it is based on true, real things. And then, of course, it's fictionalized. But uh, when you stop and think about the facts that are behind it, um, it's almost a book that is uh, nonfiction, if you will. <laughs> okay, I want to talk about the great old ones. And there's another quote from the book I want to get to. And this is actually by H.P. Lovecraft, and it's called The Call of the Kaluthla. Their mode of speech was transmitted thought. When after infinities of chaos the first men came, the great old ones spoke to the sensitive among them by molding their dreams, for only thus could their language reach the fleshly minds. 
of mammals. Wow, that's pretty heavy from HB. Can we well, talk about it? Yeah. Can we talk about the great old ones? Sure. I mean, and what what Lovecraft just described is the way that many alien abductees describe how they were communicated with by the aliens, you know, as they were abducted. The idea of transmission of images uh, and and impressions rather than words. Uh, Lovecraft was prefiguring all of this in his stories. The idea was that these beings um, don't share very much in common with our own biology, that there is some kind of connection because they're able to communicate in dreams and mold dreams of humans. So there is some point of tangents between them and us, but they're the the apparatus, the physical apparatus is not there. It's not the same. And because it's not the same, um, words don't sound the same. Words don't mean the same, obviously, but they also don't sound the same. We can't duplicate the sounds. Um, we don't have the, the right vocal cords and we don't have the right apparatus to do that. Nor do they, whatever they are, have the right apparatus to duplicate our speech. So what happens is the only common ground we have are these images. And they're images that are not necessarily visual the way we understand it, but they're the kind of images we get in dreams that we interpret visually. So who are they then? What are they? What are the great old ones? Lovecraft is never very specific as to all of this. Uh, sometimes they're coming from vast distances of space and time. In other cases, they might be another dimensional um, gateway that, that allows them into our world. There could be something that's a parallel universe. There's all these possible ways of understanding what they are. But there's this idea that they were here once before, millions of years ago, if not billions of years ago, depending upon how old this planet is and how old the universe is. They're hostile to us in the sense that we're hostile to an ant farm. It may be that there's no actual desire to harm humans. It's just that we don't really figure particularly high where they're concerned as far as living creatures are concerned. From Lovecraft's point of view, maybe we're going to be farmed, uh, or maybe we're as insignificant as ants are to us. We, they, we could be stepped on that easily. Even though their intentions may not be hostile towards us, their mere existence is a threat to us, to humanity. So Lovecraft is looking at it from that point of view, which is a very sophisticated sort of point of view. It doesn't. It goes back you know, to the statement we were talking about earlier, it's not God or the devil. It's just us versus them. So there's that element. And yet there is that point of communication. Our dreams are being somehow molded by these creatures. And is it as a means to enter into our universe, into our dimension, into our world, and to make the conquest even easier? Is that what's going on? Lovecraft is kind of open-ended about this, but he's sure about one thing. These things don't mean us good. I've had many an abductee on the show, and this is exactly what they say as well. There's very few that came on and, and have said, you know, I felt a, some kind of euphoria afterwards. I think there was one or two. But they would just submit to the process. So, right. you know, you're absolutely right. Now, when you talk about transporting photos into the mind, I think right away of remote viewing. Whereas it's all kind of white noise that's presented to you, and it's how you filter out that white noise. It's like there's a universal energy, if you will, or a universal consciousness. Maybe I'm getting too young on it. but And then you, you kind of put yourself into that realm, 
and you focus on what you need to and you draw the energy from that, uh, somehow you become a magnet for that particular energy that you're looking for and you're able to put a picture together of what you're trying to remote view. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the aspect of remote viewing in your book without giving too much away? Sure. I mean, it, it really starts with that. Um, yeah. That's part of how we understand there's this chatter going on and the chatter has become now very, very important and very dangerous. Remote viewing, of course, goes back for you know a long time. Um, the military was involved in, in studying remote viewing. Um, Stanford Research Institute, yeah. SRI in California, of course, made a, a big study of remote viewing for that went on for years. I have most of those documents, the ones that have been declassified, which formed the basis for my, my study about remote viewing. What interested me about remote viewing uh, is the fact that we did spend a great deal of time and, and effort uh, researching it for decades. And then at some point, I believe it was during the Reagan administration mm-hmm. when there was this pushback against it because some of the sort of born-again uh, members of Congress felt that this was uh, witchcraft, that it was something evil and occult. And so they wanted to pull the funding for all of that. And a lot of the remote viewing programs like Stargate and Grill, uh, Grill Flame and some of the other uh, programs were defunded. Uh, they were pushed around to different agencies for a while. It went from military to CIA and back again. Uh, it was DOD for a while, then it was uh, it was one of the intelligence agencies that had it. And then eventually the whole thing kind of fell apart as far as we know. I should mention here, though, that there was some success. There was uh, a downed submarine. I'm going by recollection now. Uh, there was a downed submarine, and the team that was remote viewing was set up to try and find out where the submarine had gone down, and they actually found it. Yes, no, it, it, it worked. It there did were work. times yes. remote viewing did work. It's just that it was not as predictable enough that you exactly. had actionable intelligence. Yeah. So they were still in the process of trying to figure out how it worked and to fine tune it right. when a lot of the funding was being pulled. Yeah, what they wanted to do was be able to go into secret files in the Soviet Union by remote viewing sure. and look at the files and read them. Yuri Geller was on the show. So, oh, he was. Okay, there you go. We're talking about that. Well, Yuri Geller is a p- perfect example. You know, he was he was part of that group out at SRI yeah. that was being, and Edgar Mitchell was part of that same group, uh, the astronaut. Yeah. So there was a lot of people took took remote viewing very very seriously. Yeah. And I had the feeling, and I have not been told this by anyone, so don't quote me that you know I have some secret back channel towards this. But I believe that after 9/11, I think some of the remote viewers were put back online. And I think the the hunt for mm. Osama bin Laden would have generated um, some remote viewing pro- uh, practices. I bet some people were, were brought online to go and do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not that's true or not, I don't know. But it's part of the story behind Lovecraft Code is that we did. Um, there was a group uh, within the intelligence community uh, after 9-11 that was called the Manson Family. Uh, it was named after the actual Manson Family. They were called this way because they were fanatics in the hunt for Osama bin Laden. And that forms part of the opening uh, chapters of the Lovecraft Code, the remote viewers and the Manson family and going after some high-value targets using remote viewing. And that leads into one of my more mysterious characters in the book, a man called Jason Miller, who's a remote viewer. Uh, So he's a character, and his remote viewing is part of the storyline as well. Fascinating stuff, folks. I'm telling you, I'm really telling you, it's great stuff. Can we talk about some of the uh, the cult rituals that are done by the Kalutha? I think I've mispronounced that. How do you pronounce that? I'm pronouncing it Cthulhu. 
Katunga. Okay, <laughs> that, that'll work for me too, because I have no idea. So can we talk a little bit about these? Are you comfortable to talk about a few sure. of these? Yeah. Okay, the esoteric order of Dagon. Yeah, Dagon, Dagon was a, a, a Semitic god. He's a god going back to the Middle East. He's one of the most, most ancient of the, the, the Near Eastern deities. Dagon was, depends on who you read, it depends upon the state of archaeology at any given time, but in some cases Dagon was believed to be a half-man, half-fish uh, divinity of some kind. And Lovecraft writes about Dagon. He writes about Dagon, I think, in The Shadow Over Innsmouth, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he believes there was an esoteric order of Dagon. I mean, he created this cult called Dagon. However, there was a Dagon. There was a deity called Dagon. And there were those who worshipped Dagon back in the, the time of the, the first temple um, period in the Middle East, uh, around 2000 BC or so. So you had you know groups that were worshipping fish deities, gods who were fertility gods, but also somehow involved with the sea. They were uh, catonic deities. That means they were underworld or under ocean deities as well. So you have this, this idea that there might be a cult in the world that's worshiping these ancient gods, which fits in with Lovecraft's Cthulhu concept, right? So Cthulhu, yeah. according to Lovecraft, is really the high priest of these ancient beings, the ones that are in telepathic communication, who are trying to come back. Cthulhu is buried. He's dead but dreaming, as Lovecraft says. He's in a kind of watery grave. There's some music. Yes. There's another hour. If you want to stick around, you're more than welcome. I only booked you for the one hour. It's up to you. I can lead over a little bit. Yeah? Okay, great. So, folks, Peter Lavenda, I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you in 10 seconds. <laughs> Look for part two if you're watching this on television and on the internet. Okay, Peter, go grab a cup of coffee and we'll be back in five minutes. Witness accounts for yours right now, nightfrightshow.com.